but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, we continue in our sermon series on the book of Acts where we have chosen different stories of conversion, uh, different encounters that people had with Christ and how that changed each of those lives. And so today we come to the, the most famous conversion story. It's not really even a question that Saul, uh, the persecutor of the church who became its most famous missionary, the apostle to the Gentiles, transformed miraculously through his encounter on the road to Damascus is the most famous of the conversion stories in this book. And so the question that we ask and hopefully answer this morning is, what is this power behind such a transformation? Somebody who was the greatest danger to the church now becomes its greatest asset. What's the power that can transform a life to such a degree? And the biblical answer is that the power is God's grace. It's God's grace that changes people. So this morning, I'd like to consider the power of God's grace first in Saul's conversion, second in his community, his new community, the church, and then finally in his calling. 
So his conversion, his community, and his calling. Okay. Saul's conversion, as any conversion, is all by grace. There's nobody that finds Christ, that legitimately connects with God and is reconciled with God, that hasn't done so by God's grace. And so in this case, this persecutor of the church, who thought he was serving God by trying to destroy this new sect, has a personal encounter with the risen Christ and is forgiven by him and is commissioned to to become a leader, an apostle in this church, somebody we will later know as Paul. And the whole direction of Saul's life is reversed. Uh, who, Who could have predicted that this would happen? But grace is always surprising. Any conversion is surprising. And so if you thought that, of course, this person got saved... If you say, of course, somebody gets saved, of course, somebody gets converted, I'm going to push you on that and ask you if you really understand how grace works. Because nobody comes to Christ because they want to come to Christ. God has to do something in them. There has to be some sort of work in their heart to even allow them to see Jesus as he is, to allow them to hear his voice and to see him and to come to him. Grace is always surprising. Now, I came across a news story this week. This is the summary of the story. It says, a missing man in Turkey accidentally joined his own search party for hours before realizing he was the person they were looking for. (laughs) Local media reports. Naturally, I was intrigued when when I read that. So here's the story. Behan Mutlu had been drinking with, usually alcohol is involved in a story like that, (laughs) had been drinking with friends on Tuesday when he wandered into a forest in Bursa province. When he failed to return, his wife and friends alerted local authorities and a search party was sent out. Mr. Mutlu, 50, then stumbled across the search party and decided to join them. But when members of the search party began calling out his name, he replied, I am here. Something similar happened to Saul on the road to Damascus. He went out searching for Christians, only to realize that he has been found by Christ himself. Saul the pursuer realized that he was pursued by Christ. The hunter was the prey. Saul's conversion, of course, is very dramatic. There's the light and the voice the road, all these things are are very dramatic, and we love stories like that, of course, because they clearly communicate what God is doing. But all conversions exhibit the same dynamics. God's grace overrides our opposition. Erwin Inns, uh, as a pastor, once described his conversion to Christ as, God graciously rejected my rejection of him. God graciously rejected my rejection of him. It's like when you go to your boss and you submit your resignation, right, and they say, I don't accept it, and you can't quit. This is what God does with us. 
Saul wanted nothing to do with Christ. He wanted to destroy this this new following, this, this new church. And yet Jesus simply refused to accept his animosity and his hostility. And Jesus found him even when Paul or Saul was was searching for Christians to imprison them and to kill them. God's grace simply overrides our opposition. Now, this is what God does every time he saves anyone. This is the nature of salvation. This is the, the essence of the gospel is grace. Grace that goes against our opposition, that covers our objections, that draws us in even when we're running away. As, as Jay shared, God pursues us. This is the nature of his relationship with us. He pursues us even as we flee him. Now, years later, and now known to most as Apostle Paul, he would explain the gospel to the Roman Christians. This is from Romans 5. And Paul would say that Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the godly, but for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, rejecting God, disobeying God, pursuing other gods, Christ died for us. And while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This is the gospel. And Saul knows that. He knows this is how it works because he was an enemy of Christ, because he was ungodly and he was a sinner and God pursued him and saved him. But that's everyone's story. No matter what your testimony is, and I hope we we hear many different testimonies this fall. We've already heard some really different stories of, of people connecting with Christ. And for some, yeah, you're growing up in a Christian home. But there comes a time when you meet Jesus. And we've heard a couple people share that, yeah, I grew up in a Christian home and I thought I believed and I thought I was fine and then I realized I wasn't. And Jesus came into my life and everything changed. And then he heard stories and we'll hear more stories of people who actually went in a completely different direction and lived their lives apart from God, deliberately rejecting him, his ideas, his realities. And then Christ just comes in and, and saves that person. This is the gospel. The gospel is Jesus coming to to make friends out of his enemies, giving his life on the cross for those who don't want that sacrifice. They don't want that gift. And he does it and he reconciles us to God while we are still enemies, still sinners. Every conversion is the gospel of grace, this gospel of sacrifice, this gospel of, of pursuit this gospel of grace transforming a life. That's conversion. A life that actually absorbs that reality of grace and now somebody who was hostile to God embraces God. But that only happens by grace. Do you understand that? I know to some of you, I may be saying something you've always believed, you get it, you've been catechized in the church, you understand exactly what grace is. But some of you, maybe you don't. Christianity is not about moral improvement. It's not about taking good people 
and making them even better. Christianity is not about God helping those who help themselves. You go part of the way and then God comes in and helps you get to to your destination the rest of the way. Christianity is about God's grace to sinners. There's God, and then there's all of us, and then grace bridges that. God bridges that to us. He comes to us. And if it is God's grace that saves people, no one is out of God's reach. Amazing truth that only makes sense if you believe in grace, if you understand grace, if you trust what Scripture says about God, who He is and what He's done for us. But if you get that, then the logical implication is that no one is outside of God's reach. That if God saved someone like Saul, is there anyone He cannot save? If God saved someone like me, is there anyone God cannot save? I've mentioned this before, and I actually think of it often, because I, I hear people's stories, and people whom I know to be godly, you know, solidly converted, established in the Lord, quoting Scripture, attending church, raising their families, loving their neighbor, and then you hear their story, and you realize that Fifteen years ago, nobody in their right mind would have predicted this turn of events. Now, I only know them now, so it's difficult for me, right? But if you knew them then, and if you knew me then, you would say, I don't, I don't really see that. I don't see how God would do that or how this person would respond. And you, you think about, in human terms, you think about this personality and this life and these experiences, and you think, how can this person change? And of course, it's impossible. Unless God intervenes, unless God pours out His grace, and then that grace powerfully works in that person, and that person is different. Sometimes it's very dramatic, like in Saul's life. Sometimes it's gradual, like in Timothy's life, for example. But there's always a change, and there's always a change because grace is at work. And this should motivate us to keep praying for people who are indifferent or even hostile to Christ. We all have people in our lives, relatives, children, neighbors, friends, co-workers, that in our minds, it is impossible to envision that person becoming a Christian. Now, I have people in my life, my life that I think, and I've shared the gospel so many times with them, and I've been praying for so many years for them. And I just don't see the gospel making any difference. There's no traction. There's no interest. Whenever I bring up Jesus, it's like, you know, their eyes glaze over and they just tune out. And it's just, there's just nothing there. There's, there's a spiritual darkness and a spiritual deadness there. And I, I can't break through that. Now, when I read a story like Saul's conversion, I have to say Saul was like that. Nobody would have said he would be a Christian, he would be an apostle, he would be a leader in the church. Who would have said that? And yet God pursued him and God grabbed him and God changed him, which means anybody on my list of impossible conversions is not impossible. God can get them. So that should motivate us to pray, motivate us to witness, motivate us not to give up. Because maybe, just maybe, in God's mercy, he would reach that person because he can't. 
And the other implication of, of believing in grace and accepting the nature of conversion is that we should not be hesitant to believe when that happens. Ananias, I mean, it's, it's remarkable that Jesus appears to Ananias, right? Jesus is speaking to him just like he spoke to Paul, and he says, and go to that person, he's, he's at that house on that street, and you lay your hands on him and you pray for him. And Ananias says, I, I heard about that guy. The implication is, I'm not sure you can change him. I'm not sure this is a good idea to welcome him into the church. And Christ gently affirms that, the reality of grace, and sends Ananias. Ananias goes to, to Saul and he says, Brother Saul. Because Ananias ultimately believes in grace. He believes that even Saul can be changed. And so for us, as a church, anyone is welcome here because grace can reach anyone. There's nobody that would say, well, you can't come here because we don't think it's a good idea for God to, you know, save someone like you. Right? That just means I don't believe in grace. That means I have something in me that I could commend myself to God with, and that's why he saved me. Ultimately, I don't believe in grace. I believe maybe grace part of the way, but not all the way. And so Ananias has to learn that and has to welcome converted Saul into the church. And Saul's conversion shows us that this grace, this power of grace from God comes to us through a personal encounter with Jesus. I, I love Jay's testimony of experiencing the Holy Spirit, meeting with God, and not being able to explain it away and do something else with it. You have to deal with God when God comes to you. And the same thing happens here with Saul when he has a personal encounter with Jesus. Now, in his case, he sees a bright light. This is noon, so the sun is shining, but this light is brighter than, than the sun. He hears a voice. Now, it's interesting that nobody else understands what's going on. This is, this is intimate. This is personal. Other people, they hear something, but they can't understand what, what is being said. They're not blinded by the light, but he is. Jesus is speaking to him. He sees the light, and, and, and the light blinds him, and then he hears the voice. It's Jesus appearing to him and speaking to him. And this encounter changes Saul. He sees the Lord, and he hears him speak. Conversion is always a supernatural thing. Saul was blinded by the light brighter than the sun at noon. Supernatural thing. And yet, in it, he saw Jesus. Many times when he recounts his story, when he talks about his apostleship, Paul talks about Jesus appearing to him. He talks about seeing Jesus. This is, this is a, an encounter with the risen Christ. He can say, I saw him. I know him. I talked with him. Just like the other apostles. And in fact, when he saw Jesus, and then he was blind for, for three days, Saul saw more during those three days that he was blind than during his whole life before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. 
And he learned more about God when he heard the voice of Jesus than in all his years of studying under the famed rabbis in Jerusalem. This is how conversion happens. Our eyes are open, our hearts are open, we see, we comprehend things that we couldn't before. And so conversion happens when we meet Jesus and he speaks to us, he speaks of his love and forgiveness, and he meets us and he changes us by grace. Now, it may not be as dramatic in every situation. There are some dramatic testimonies in the Christian church. This is one of them. But it's always the same. Jesus comes, and we see him, and we hear him, and we submit to him. Simone Weil was a a 20th century French intellectual who argued against God and was trying to, to, to come up with arguments to dispute God's existence. And then she underwent a dramatic conversion to Christ. This is how she describes it. She says, in my arguments about the insolubility of the problem of God, I had never foreseen the possibility of that, of a real contact, person to person, here below between a human being and God. So she had all these arguments, she has all these these things she thought, but she could never imagine that God would just come to her and it would be personal. She says, I had heard tell of things of this kind, but I had never believed in them. In the sudden possession of me by Christ, neither my senses nor my imagination had any part. I only felt in the midst of my suffering the presence of a love, like that which one can read in the smile on a beloved face. Has it happened to you? Have you met Jesus? Have you heard him speak to you? Have you experienced his grace? Now, I mean very personally. I don't mean you've worked out the arguments. I don't mean you've embraced the moral code. I don't mean membership in the church. I'll talk about it a little bit later. I mean a personal encounter with God. No matter how dramatic or mundane, whether it was a moment or a process, But do you know him? Is he a person that you know? Do you know his love like a smile on a beloved face? That's what makes you a Christian. That's what makes you converted, different, changed, God's grace flowing through that personal encounter with Christ. Now, grace comes directly and personally in conversion. But then the same grace is affirmed and experienced in the church community. We often talk about conversion only in personal ways, and and personal is extremely important, but it is also communal. There's a corporate element to conversion. Now, I was listening to a sermon on this text by by Dick Dick Lucas. I've mentioned him before. He was a pastor in, in London. And he asked this question, which took me by surprise. I'd never considered that. The question was, when was Saul actually converted in the story? What was the moment of his conversion? And, you know, for most of us, we would think that's a silly question. Of course, when he saw the light, he heard the voice on the road to Damascus. But if you read the passage more closely, I think the passage may suggest something different. At least there's that possibility of a different interpretation. Saul's blindness does not leave him until Ananias comes to lay hands on him. And of course, physical blindness 
is a symbol of spiritual blindness in Scripture, like we read in Isaiah 42, for example. So Jesus sends Ananias to lay hands on Saul that he may become, that he may see again, which would symbolize a change, a conversion, and that he would receive the Holy Spirit, which, of course, is the person who regenerates us, makes us new, makes us alive. It's not unreasonable to think that Saul's conversion is only complete when Ananias ministers to him. At the very least, we must conclude that Saul's interaction with the church, represented by Ananias and then the disciples in Damascus, was evidence and validation of his conversion. The point here is that Christ has bound himself to his church, and his grace comes through his church. It is experienced and affirmed in his church. The role of the church, biblically, if you read the book of Acts, you read the New Testament, the role of the church is simply indispensable. Now, when Jesus appears to Saul, did you notice that he has Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you? He's not sure who is that that he's been persecuting. And the Lord says, I'm Jesus, whom you have been persecuting. Jesus doesn't want to get him, take him off the hook for, for persecuting him through the church. See, for Paul, he doesn't believe Jesus is around. He believes Jesus is dead. He has really no concern about Jesus, but he's concerned with the church. He's concerned with his disciples, whom he believes are mistaken and are dangerous and I've got to bring all sorts of trouble to Israel. And so he goes after them to try to destroy this, this new teaching, this new movement. And yet when Jesus appears to him, Jesus says, because you persecute my church, you persecute me. Because Jesus has bound himself to the church, to his people. Jesus doesn't see himself and his cause and his kingdom separate from his church. Saul persecuted Christ by persecuting the church. That's the reality. And Christ saved Saul by using the church. And then Christ made Saul a leader and a servant of the church. It's impossible to read this story without thinking about the effect Saul's life has on the church, on the Christian movement. One of the most influential missionaries and proponents of the gospel. He planted churches, he built churches up, he developed teachings that helps us today. Now, there's an interesting trend developing in our culture today. The percentage of white Americans identifying as evangelical grew from 25% to 29% between 2016 and 2020. So in four years, there are four more percentage points among white Americans who identify as evangelical. Now, these are millions of people. I think we should say this is a revival, isn't it? I mean, if, if million, millions of new people now identify as evangelical, which we would interpret as those who believe in the gospel, who follow Christ, this is a revival, isn't it? And yet it isn't. It isn't. I wish it were. But in reality, 
a larger portion of political conservatives now self-identify as evangelicals. David French, who is a religious liberties lawyer and commentator, sees it as a political trend and not a spiritual trend. This is what he says. He says, why do I say the transformation is political and not religious? A key metric here is church attendance. An increasing number of self-described evangelicals go to church rarely or not at all. The numbers are remarkable. So French says this is a political trend and not a spiritual trend because people who self-identify as evangelicals are not part of the church. And here are the numbers. In 2008, a little over 16% of self-identified evangelicals reported never or seldom attending church. So 16% of self-identified evangelicals said in 2018, in 2008, that they didn't go to church. In 2020, it's 26%. So 10 percentage points it goes up to people who don't go to church and yet identify as evangelicals. Now in the same period, weekly or more attendance dropped from 58% to 49%. So to identify as evangelical is becoming more of a political statement than a religious one. In other words, evangelicalism, which is our movement, we are an evangelical church, evangelicalism is losing its religious identity. And the main factor that explains this shift is separation from the local church. I think this is deeply troubling because evangelical means gospel. The reason we've used that term for so many years is because we talk about the gospel of Christ, the grace of Christ, this, this message that Jesus came to die for sinners and, and, and give us a new life in him and forgiveness of sins by grace and a, and a new future. That's the message. That's the gospel. Grace is the gospel. And we are so enthralled with the gospel that we say we want to be identified as gospel people, as evangelicals. That's what it means. And historically, that is what it's meant. But today, that label has become more political than religious. Now, this is not a judgment on political perception or ideas or convictions. What I'm describing is a shift in using a religious label to now identify with political convictions. And the reason that happens is because we have separated from the local church. When the church is no longer the primary community that shapes a person, people who may identify as evangelical no longer understand and live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whatever your political convictions are, if you call yourself an evangelical and you're not part of the church, we have to ask the question, do you understand the gospel? Do you live the gospel out? Because Jesus has bound himself to his church, and his grace is experienced in the church community. Listen to David French again. He says, There isn't a meaningful branch of evangelical orthodoxy that is truly church optional. 
Disconnection from the church doesn't just mean disconnection from Christian community. It also frequently means disconnection from biblical literacy and Christian ethics. Now, this is what's happening. When you simply say an evangelical, but you're not part of an evangelical church, you start believing things that are not evangelical. And you start doing things that are not evangelical because you don't have the evangelical community to keep you in check. Now, I am not sure what to do with the term evangelical, to be honest with you, because of all these connotations, because of all the misconceptions and misrepresentations. I don't know what to do with it. I'm not ready to give up on it just yet, but I'm certainly not okay with divorcing the term from the life of the evangelical church. We are church people. And as we saw in Saul's experience, it is the community of Christ's followers that affirms his and our conversion. When Ananias said, Brother Saul, this is such an important moment when Ananias comes to this persecutor of the church, knowing that grace can change even him, and knowing that Christ spoke to him and said, this is one of my chosen instruments. I'm going to use him for the church. Ananias believes Jesus, and he goes to Paul, to Saul, and he says, Brother Saul. And God's grace flows to this former persecutor of the church, now welcome and accepted by those he came to imprison and murder. It's no coincidence that the name Ananias means the Lord is gracious. How committed are you to the local church? The community that believes the gospel, the community that hears the gospel and speaks the gospel and attempts to live the gospel faithfully? How committed are you to the local church, the the people, the actual community, not the, the institution so much, not the idea so much, but the, the actual gathering of the people. Is this community what shapes you, shapes your opinions, even your political views, your decisions, your emotions, your associations? Do you see this as optional or do you see it as essential? In other words, I can't really be a Christian without my people. I need my people so I can stay a Christian and so I can be a faithful Christian, so I can understand God's grace and experience that I need them. It's my family. I need them. Do you see it like that? Or do you see it maybe as a nice bonus? You know, sometimes it's nice to come to church, maybe get a little encouraged or a little convicted when needed, but not essential. Jesus sees it as essential. He's bound himself to his church. And finally, let's finish by looking at God's powerful grace in Saul's new calling. Ananias is sent not only to welcome Saul into the church, but to commission him to spread the gospel. Verse 15, But the Lord said to him, the Lord says to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Jesus saves Saul by grace, and then he calls him to speak about the same grace to others. And Saul obeys this new calling. Verse 20, and immediately, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. Immediately. The Lord transformed 
Saul's zeal against the church into a passion to proclaim the gospel all over the world. It's chosen instrument to build the church among the Gentiles. Now, there's divine irony here, of course, because Saul violently protected the superiority of the Jewish faith and culture. And then Christ sent him to summon the nations into the church. He called Saul to a cross-cultural ministry resulting in a multi-ethnic church. That's grace too, isn't it? It takes someone like Saul and completely changes their outlook on life and uses him to do something remarkable like that. Now, of course, very few people have an influence the scope of Apostle Paul's. God chose him for an incredibly fruitful and and extensive ministry. But all of us who've been converted, who've been incorporated into the church, all of us are called to spread God's grace. In God's design, our personal experience of grace and then our communal affirmation and experience of grace must lead to the spreading and sharing of that same grace with others. Every converted Christian becomes a conduit of grace. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's your mission statement. You've been chosen. You've been called. You've been changed so that you can proclaim his excellencies. Each one of us is a chosen instrument in God's hands, which means God has shaped your life. God has put your circumstances in a certain order. God has made you a certain way shaped your personality, blessed you with relationships and experiences so that he could use you in a particular way. So wherever there is darkness, we become light. Wherever there is evil, we combat it with good. Wherever there is injustice, we spread the righteousness of God. Wherever there is sickness, we bring healing. Wherever there is despair, we bring hope. Now our presence in the world becomes a conduit of grace. It becomes a channel through which God's powerful grace flows into other people's lives. Now, of course, some would say Saul just became a different kind of a religious fanatic. Switched religions, but he remained just as dangerous and harmful. This is a common view today. Fanaticism or extremism of any kind is what people say is wrong with the world. And so there's always a call to, to balance and restrain the middle road. So let's just kind of avoid extremes here. And sure, to be extremely wrong about something is worse than to be moderately wrong about something. But to be right, to be extremely in line with reality is better than to be only partially right and partially in line with reality. If grace is real, if it's true, then we must be completely immersed in it. We must soak it up to the fullest and then channel as much of it to others as possible. 
So that extreme fanatical commitment to the grace of God in Jesus is what I think the world actually needs. Because grace excludes oppression. You cannot be filled with grace and be oppressive. It excludes pride. If I believe in grace, there's nothing that I would say about myself that would make me better than anybody else. It excludes selfishness because it places focus on Jesus, who is the source of all grace. Grace puts everyone on the same footing and that it raises all to heaven. And if you believe that, what I want to encourage you to do is, is be extremely committed to that. Be a grace fanatic. Be a grace extremist. Because if it's real, we need more of that. Grace compelled Jesus to go all the way and give his life for others. That was extreme. And we who have been transformed by his grace become extremely grateful and extremely committed to live our lives, as Paul later put it in Galatians, in step with the truth of the gospel. Have you embraced your calling, if you're a Christian? Have you embraced that calling that wherever you are, you are a conduit of grace and you are an extremist in that way. You're going to give as much grace as you can. You're going to absorb it yourself and you're going to give it out because you will never run out.